Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very happy today to welcome Caroline Lucas to the podcast. Caroline is a long-standing activist and tireless campaigner on environmental and other issues in the UK and the EU. Caroline was elected as a Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion in 2010, becoming the first Green Party MP. Before that, Caroline served as a Green Party MEP between 1999 and 2010, and Caroline has twice been elected party leader. Prior to politics, Caroline worked at Oxfam for 10 So thank you very much, Caroline, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. So can you tell me a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about your background as a politician and with the Green Party and maybe give us a short overview of, of your uh, career and what you're up to at the moment? Uh, okay, so I am currently the uh, only Green Party member of the House of Commons um, in the UK. Uh, that is really because we have such a horrible electoral system in this country, which means that for smaller parties, it can be very hard to get elected. So even though, for example, in 2015, over a million people voted Green, um, unfortunately, that still only uh, went to, to, to one MP. So I've been at Westminster in the House of Commons since 2010, representing the wonderful city of Brighton. Um, before that, I was a member of the European Parliament for uh, around 10 years. Uh, and before that, I was uh, a county councillor in Oxfordshire. And um, after I finished work at university, um, I worked for Oxfam for around 10 years. So basically, I've worked for an NGO, for um, for the European Parliament, the Westminster Parliament, done a little bit in uh, the civil service as well on secondment from, from Oxfam. So basically trying to work out how, how to make change happen and, and trying to work out where you best need to be to make that make that a reality. Great, great. So, can I just ask you what's on your mind at the moment? What, what, what is, uh, what keeps you awake? And just give us maybe a. a <laughs> I know we could talk for a long time about that, but maybe just a couple of things that are most pressing. Well, it would be lovely not to have to mention the B word, but B for Brexit. I'm afraid does tend to overshadow everything else. So, real concern about uh, the leadership race in the Conservative Party, whether or not the Conservatives are going to end up voting for somebody who is perfectly relaxed about a New Deal Brexit, which most sensible people would think would be an absolute disaster. Um, so that that leadership contest um, will will basically lead to um, the, new, the new prime minister coming into, into office sort of towards the end of July. So that's the backdrop is, is a lot of concern about Brexit and in particular about this crazy threat of a No Deal Brexit. And at the same time, lots of work, obviously, on, on the climate crisis. Um, the exciting part being that, you know, I don't ever remember climate change being so high on the political agenda, at least not for very many years, and all tribute to the climate strikers, to Extinction Rebellion, to all of these groups that have worked so hard to, uh, to make sure that that issue is at the top of the agenda. At the same time, uh, you know, there's that real tension between recognition that we need to act but the gulf between that and and real action being agreed on the on the positive side last week the uh, the prime minister theresa may did agree that uh, we would move to net zero by 2050 
net zero emissions by by 2050. On the face of it, obviously, I welcome that. But actually, when you scratch the surface a little bit, A, it's too little and too late. And B, there are so many loopholes built into that overall objective that uh, it's hard to be 100% um, positive about it too. Yes, absolutely. And and, and how, how do you think the UK is doing in terms of its uh, carbon footprint or, or, or the, the important measures? Uh, some, some, some measures include uh, our imports, others don't. Um, what would you say are a few, think, few, few good achievements and, and, and a kind of overview of where you think where we are? I mean, credit where it's due. I think the UK has, generally speaking, played a very positive role on the international stage. I think, for example, the UK played a really important role in pushing the EU as a whole to be more ambitious in terms of the climate targets that it that it went into the Paris climate talks with. So we talk a good talk internationally. My worry is the increasing gulf between what we say and what we do. If you had a, a government minister on the line just now, they would say that, you know, we've managed to reduce our emissions since for, for you know, around 40% since 1990. So, you know, that's amazing. But the truth is that you know, that emission reduction doesn't, first of all, take into account our consumption emissions. And, you know, it's easy enough to get your emissions down if basically you're outsourcing the vast majority of your manufacturing to countries like China, where that that manufacturing then, you know, ends up sitting on on the Chinese um, balance sheet, not on ours, even though we then import the goods back into the UK. So the first thing to say is that our our good achievement looks rather less good when you factor in consumption emissions, when you factor in aviation and shipping, which scandalously are also not included in that overall emission reduction um, claim. So, you, you know, we've got a lot to do domestically, particularly since the Committee on Climate Change you know, is pointing out that our near-term targets for the 2020s and 2030s, we, we are off target to, to meet those. So we need to be doing an awful lot more uh, here at home. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the, the 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 recent European elections, I think, were were uh, well. You can tell me whether they, uh, seem to have been uh, positive for the Greens. Um, is, is that your sense? Um, I mean, we've seen certainly in the UK, uh, a, a, a green surge or or uh, great uh, wa- waves of green support before. I mean, is it different this time? I mean, what, what can you talk about that? Well, I think. Um, Certainly, the results in the UK, we were, we, were, we were very delighted with. I mean, again, you know, around two million people voting green, which is which is quite extraordinary. And that led to um, our winning seven seats in the European Parliament and very nearly uh, winning two more. We were just, you know, very, very narrowly off winning two more. So that was, a, you know, a fantastic result for us. But what's so exciting is that that's mirrored in so many other European countries. You know, where Germany, the Greens were actually ahead of of, of Angela Merkel's party for for a while. You know, they they did amazingly with over twenty MEPs. France has done fantastically. Uh, the Nordic countries. So so this is a really exciting time. There are more Greens now in the European Parliament than there have ever been before. So a really strong strong group. And I think that means that they'll be able to play a really key role in terms of ensuring that action on on biodiversity, on nature and on climate are absolutely at the top of the agenda going forward. 
Yes, I mean, uh, these, uh, you know, environmental climate change, these kind of questions have been at the core of of green uh, policy for, for, for many decades, for, for a long time. And I guess uh, to a lesser or greater degree, other political parties are becoming more aware or taking on board some of these ideas and policies. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there seems to be quite a bit of momentum just very recently um, with respect to, you know, uh, public opinion uh, in, in Europe not uh, and the the United States, but in generally, so what? What does that mean for the Greens as a political party in terms of uh, the, 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 I guess, the spread of ideas? And there, there are some people who've, who've suggested that some of the you know uh, far right uh, political parties in Europe have uh, started to you know embrace more, uh, more willing to think about ideas of climate change, but from the, for their own particular agenda. Yes, I mean, I, I, I certainly don't recognise the uh, the greenness of, of, of green policies if they're coming from, from the far right, because for us, democracy and peace are absolutely at the heart of the green agenda. So how you do your greenness as well as what you do is is vitally important. And so the four pillars of 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 green politics, as they say, includes democracy um, uh, and and includes that 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 sense of sort of personal uh, engagement as 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 well. So. I mean, what it means for us, I think, is that it's all the more important for us to be um, challenging so-called greenwash coming from other parties. Uh, other parties, you know, are learning to uh, walk the talk, but they are, or rather talk the talk, but they're not actually walking it. In other words, you know, our environment secretary, Michael Gove, managed to to to, to say he agreed there was a climate emergency and to say that he was in favour of expanding Heathrow Airport more or less in the same breath. And the bottom line is that, you know, if you have a parliament that's declared a, a, a climate emergency, as we have now here in the UK, you know, that's that's great. But words are cheap. Uh, what we need is the is the action that follows it. And so I think that the job of the Green parties now will perhaps be slightly less on, on sort of making the case for the need for urgent action. I think more and more people are, are well aware of that. And certainly the other parties are aware of it. What we need to do now is to be, you know, really putting a spotlight of scrutiny on on what the other parties are actually doing in terms of, of 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 trying to meet the much much tougher climate reduction targets and and biodiversity targets and so on that we have, because there is a real a real concern I think about greenwash. Um, you know, the other parties realise that dressing up in some green clothes, you know, can be a vote winner, but it's got to be more than skin deep. Yes, do you, do you worry about the that that many of the targets and and are, are voluntary? Uh, I, I do certainly when it comes to, to to business. I think that it's pretty clear that voluntary targets don't tend to work, and they certainly don't tend to work when there's an urgency to to getting us where we need to be fast enough. So, you know, I I think that what business needs more than anything is is some real certainty, some real targets, and some real teeth. And the, and the bottom line is really, as 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 far as I've heard back from businesses, is that you know they mind less about what the targets are and more that it should be a level playing field and that and that the and that the goalposts don't get moved you know many times and 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 that feeds into one of the critiques actually of this um, position that our prime minister took last week of this net zero by 2050 because she's built into that pledge a review clause after five years. Um, and, and that review clause is supposed to kick in, particularly if other countries haven't followed the UK's lead. But by doing that, by making your leadership contingent upon others following, you, first of all, personally, I think you undermine 
any sense of of what real leadership is. But secondly, you end up actually undermining that sense of business certainty that they need. If if if, if businesses think that the the targets could change again or, or could even be suddenly relaxed after five years, then that is a, a very major disincentive for them to, to, to act. So certainly we need we need biding targets, but we also crucially need policy certainty. Yes. Yes. Now, I want to talk uh, in a moment about the, the Green New Deal. I, I was talking to somebody recently. Um, but I, I'm interested in this question of the change of uh, you, you mentioned that uh, you know, I, I think for a long time, uh, various uh, parties or various, uh, uh, I guess, entities have been trying to get the message across about the, the, the scale of the problem and so forth. And that's seemed to be a, a you know huge challenge. But it does seem to the momentum seems to the wind maybe has changed very quickly. And and as you you say so the question for now is is less you know trying to convince people but to think you know what to do and i was talking to somebody involved in uh, reforestation and uh, rewilding and that kind of thing i was saying that a lot of the kinds of things that uh, you know conservation programs and things like that they take a long time and they are you know quite nuanced quite context specific and and uh, worry that uh, in, in the rush to, to to suddenly take action and, and now we've got a race ahead that that um, not enough thought is given to, you know, which are really, if, if you're really talking about you know, changing the, the, the way a whole economy operates in a very short period of time, um, that, that, that is an enormous challenge. Well, it is, it is certainly a big challenge, but, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's, you know, that much disagreement about what needs to be done we just need to get on and start doing it, you know. So, for example, when it comes to um, ensuring that we're getting rid of petrol and diesel cars, you know, at the moment the government's got a, a target for for 2040 to do that. I think I'm right in saying that even India has got a, an earlier target than that. So, I think what we just need to do is to really accelerate the progress towards some of these objectives, and to recognise that there are so many win-wins out there. I mean, if you take the issue of our extremely leaky building stock, which is responsible for a huge percentage of our emissions in this country. If we were to have a program to insulate every single building in Britain, you know, that would create hundreds of thousands of jobs. It would get lots of money coming back to the treasury in terms of of taxes paid. It would get people's fuel bills down. So it would tackle fuel poverty, uh, as well as getting our climate emissions down. So, you know, I think Although an awful lot of um, attention is, is is spent on looking at the at the cost side of this equation, I think we need to look at the at the benefits, in particular the co-benefits, things like you know better better air quality, uh, you know less pressure on our health service and so forth, as well obviously as as the costs of not acting. And as Nicholas Stern reminded us, you know well over ten years ago now. The cost of inaction is is far greater than the the cost of of acting. Yes, I mean you're right to emphasize the win win uh, possibilities and certainly you know get those going. But underlying this whole question is you know economic growth compatible? I mean with the the kinds of pro- problems. I mean can can we really deal with the the challenges we're facing, the environmental challenges, when the uh, you know we're, we're racing ahead? Uh, you know every country is trying to you know grow economically. I mean and, and this is a very vexed question. You bring up the question of economic growth or you know there's degrowth theories there's various ways of you know parsing that but it's a economist it's a very heated area um and and it seems you know growing even by two two and a half percent is you know doesn't seem like a lot but over 20 25 years the next 20 25 you're talking about like 
doubling effectively the material output of the global economy, which has already, you know, broken so many different environmental boundaries? Well, you're absolutely right. It is a, a vexed question. And I think just to put it in perspective, if you consider that what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said is that we need to be net zero by 2050. In that same 30-year period between now and 2050, the size of the global economy is due to increase by a multiple of three. So in other words, three times as much production and consumption we're expecting by 2050 that we have today than, than we have today. And even if you employed the most heroic assumptions about the decoupling of production and environmental degradation, climate impacts and so forth. No one anywhere in the world has demonstrate a com demonstrated a, a complete decoupling. And, and therefore, I think that does raise extremely serious questions about, about the particular growth model that we have. And I, I think the bottom line essentially is that clearly some areas of the economy do need to grow. We want to see far more green tech. We want to see far more you know, steel being produced for our, for our wind turbines and so forth. But if that's the case, then we need to see degrowth in other areas. So we're not seeing a net increase in growth. So, for example, a couple of things that I would be very happy to see scrapped would be um, uh, the, the, the plans for aviation expansion, airport expansion, um, the plans for HS2, a, a very major rail uh, link that actually doesn't help the vast majority of people. It just means that uh, some business people can get to London a bit a bit quicker than they do today. Uh, you could look at, you know, nuclear weapons. There's a whole number of things that we spend billions of pounds on, uh, which are associated with an awful lot of growth. But frankly, we don't have space for, if you like, in the overall sense of the fact that that we have to fit our economy within the within the size of the of the of the ecosphere as, as a whole. And, and that might sound a bit, you know, uh, <laughs> complicated, but essentially, if you just think of it as as, as, a, as a donut, and, and the wonderful Kate Rayworth, an economist, has done some fantastic work on what she calls donut economics. But what she's doing is really demonstrating how, in so many ways, outer ring of the donut, we are exceeding that um, in terms of our climate emissions, in terms of air pollution, soil degradation, uh, you, you know, in so many ways. And we need to get those back within that sort of safe area between the two rings of the of the so-called donut. So, yeah, I think essentially, as she says, what we need are economies that, that that allow us to thrive, whether or not they grow, rather than this obsession with GDP growth, as if it as if it really were the case that that an increase in GDP growth tells us anything very useful about about well-being. Because, in my view, it certainly doesn't. Yes, very interesting. And I, I like to talk. Uh briefly about the Green New Deal and mindful of the time. But before then, one more vexed question, perhaps. The role of corporates and banks, um, I think I was at the Montreal Accord or where, where they dealt with the, um, the ozone layer, that people say that one of the great reasons that that's was success successful is they could get all of the people in the room that were involved. And in a similar way, I don't know what the statistics are, but some, you know, 100 corporations are responsible in one way or another for what well, I don't know what the figures are 70 80 percent of carbon emissions and I'm just wondering you know what's your view on uh you know engaging with corporates and and holding corporates to account I mean I recently I saw a figure which was stunned me that the uh said something like global banks investing you know two trillion dollars in in fossil fuels since the climate pact that you know that these are so massive and you know deeply coupled uh drivers of carbon emissions you're absolutely right and and, and i think you know we overlook the the, the finance and, and corporate sector at our at our peril and it's not even just the the private 
uh, sector. I mean, one of the shocking things that one of the committees that I sit on um, uncovered just a few uh, days ago, the Environmental Audit Committee, we did a, a report into UK export finance. In other words, the support that the government gives, our government gives to uh, private companies operating in risky areas uh, abroad. And the shocking thing was that if you looked at the energy sector, uh, 96% of the support that our UK government gives to private companies in the energy sector is going to fossil fuels. Now, that makes absolutely no sense at all, given everything that the government says about the importance of reducing our climate emissions. So that would be a very good place to start. But it's certainly the case, I think, that we need uh, corporates to be to be held to account. I think the divestment movement is also vitally important because one way of concentrating minds for corporates uh, is, is, is to uh, ensure that their shareholders are uh, very active shareholders and, and absolutely proposing a divestment from fossil fuels themselves. Um, I think that we need to uh, have far greater regulation of, uh, of, of, of the big companies that, as you say, are, are overwhelmingly responsible for the climate emissions that, that are made. So banks like uh, RSB, the, the Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS, sorry, Royal Bank of Scotland, the, you know, the UK citizens still uh, own part of that bank. And yet that bank, again, is giving loans to to more fossil fuel extraction. And, and I think, you know, if the political will were there, we really could make a difference with, with, with some regulation here because it wouldn't take that much to start taking the wind out of the sails of, of, of that degree of, of propping up of the fossil fuel industry. Yes, yes. Interesting. Now, quickly, you can't really be quickly, but the Green New Deal, I mean, this is something that you were, as I understand, and the Green Party, you know, instrumental in developing the key ideas well, 12, 13 years ago. I've been surprised by um, the the degree to which it's in the uh, uh, atmosphere, at least at the moment. And to what extent do you think um, this is real? And are you optimistic that that we have a, a real opportunity here to for, for, for change? Uh, well, I always try to stay optimistic. So I, I, I do think that these are quite exciting times. And, and, and you're right, it was back in 2007 and eight when a small group of us in the UK were um, looking at the, um, the the state of the economy at that point. And it was just, you know, more or less on the on the on the eve of the layman's crash and, and so forth. Um, and what we were saying back then was that a massive investment in in the green economy would would you know be good for pulling the uk out of the out of the recession that followed but also would be good in terms of um the the, the jobs and in terms of the climate impact and so forth and we got a little bit of traction then but nothing like what's happened since and pay tribute of course to the sunrise movement in the us and to the congresswoman alexandria uh Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, who has really picked up this idea of a Green New Deal in the States and, and run with it. And I think the beauty of it, in a sense, is that it's it's it talks about the importance of a, of a mass mobilization, frankly, the sort of mobilization we've not seen since the Second World War. And actually, Joseph Stieglitz was writing in the papers just a week or so back, talking about climate change as, as our Third World War. And I know some people, and myself included, sometimes feel a bit uh, a bit concerned about about the sort of wartime analogy, but but it does work in the in the sense that you know just as you know we were able to change the direction of our economy to change you know so much human behaviour really in the blink of an eye when when an enemy was was perceived to be a you know a foreign force massing on the on the other side of the uh, channel, and I think the the challenge for us now is to recognise that climate change is every bit as serious as a 
as an enemy foe, uh, an awful lot more complicated to deal with, arguably. Uh, but we need that same degree of, of speedy mobilization, basically a kind of a 10-year mobilization strategy to, to kind of get the investment where it needs to be as fast as it, as it needs to happen. Um, I've put down a, a, a private member's bill alongside a, a Labour MP, Clive Lewis, um, to try to get a, a UK Green New Deal along the lines of the one that um, AOC has done in, in, in the States. And I'm very excited that I think the difference really between now and 13 years ago when we were talking about it is that now there is a movement behind it. There is a real mobilisation of people behind it. And I think more and more people around the country are excited about how they could look at you know, their own communities and see how a Green New Deal might just begin to bring this country back together again too because you know, post the um, the Brexit referendum, you'll know that that, that our country is, is more divided than it's been for, for, for decades. And part of that, at least, is that whole swathes of the country, I think, have felt left out of the prosperity that's been generated from the from the centre of London. So if we can find a way of genuinely, um, you know, involving people, you know, right at the at the heart of of reimagining their communities in, in a more sustainable way and putting the resources into that, then I think that's very exciting, both in terms of, of dealing with climate, but also dealing with, with inequality and justice and, you know, and those very real grievances that people have. It's very interesting. I spoke to Rob Hopkins of the Transition Movement and uh, hearing his experience working with local communities in that kind of way is very, 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 very powerful. But what kind of politics, what kind of structure? I mean, firstly, it entails a, a very different role for the state than certainly we've seen over the last 30 years, although maybe the tide is changing. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. Um, but also in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting people involved um, and more community based, more, you know, bottom up uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, this 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 won't work unless there really are, um, you know, communities who are energised around it and who are organising from the bottom up. And there have been a, a range of different um, processes that have been, you know, proposed as part of this. So, for example, you could imagine a series of of citizens assemblies in different parts of the country where people come together uh, to, to to really uh, share ideas about about how they could imagine a, a transition for for their own communities but to me what excites me is that that this can be really really sort of tangible and place-based and so what I would love to see is you know take somewhere like Scunthorpe where the steelworks are due to close you know how could we re-envisage what that could look like I mean we need steel for for example uh, wind turbines and so forth and it makes no sense to be importing them from 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 elsewhere so yeah, how how would we shift steel production to be far more sustainable than it is now? In other words, to get, you know, those arc furnaces, you know, powered by renewable energy, for example, and and what skills would would the workforce need in terms of being able to really shift on that? And and workers and and the unions have to be at the absolute heart of this. So, to my mind, yes, it, it certainly does involve a, a, a different role for the state, a far more interventionist state. But crucially, it has to be driven not by the state, but by the local communities and by the workers and the unions in those local communities. And if we can get those collaborations together at a local level, then I think that can be really exciting. Yeah, what's striking is how things, how quickly in some areas things can change, um, and the mood can change, and just really over the last three or six months with respect to you know climate change, the awareness and so forth. But when it comes to politics, as <laughs> what's the term politics as usual? I mean, what's your feeling in 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 you know if you just look at the the uh, uh, 
collapse or political collapse shall we say after brexit and uh, attempted brexit and the and, and and the state of affairs um you know what will it take to actually uh revitalize politics and and you know not just transcend that kind of uh uh polar kind of uh political thinking but uh deal with these these, these broader issues well you're you're quite right that uh you know these these are pretty dismal days in the UK right now um and i think what we need is is nothing short of a, a sort of a constitutional overhaul we, you know one of the things i would love to see is a change in our electoral system so that <clears throat> people's votes count all the time i think one of the things that that kind of led to that that mounting sense of frustration and anger which was manifested at the uh, at the referendum was the sense that people hadn't been heard their voices haven't been heard for years politics has been done to them rather than with them and i think a change in our electoral system so that you know every vote counts so we don't have the first past the post system but we have a more proportional system could make a very real difference to that um well, I think that the, the answer to that question comes down to power. You know, where where is power held? And at the moment, the UK is one of the most centralised countries or, or or set of nations in in the world. And so, my answer to that question would be absolutely a serious devolution of of power and a decentralisation of our organisation. I could go alongside that with with you know an overhaul of our vastly unfair electoral system. It's a, an electoral system first past the post, which means that. You know, whole swathes of the country never get their voice heard. So I think we need a, a fair voting system. I think we need constitutional reform. I think we need radical devolution. Personally, I would love to see the House of Commons move to to Leeds or Nottingham or, you know, somewhere that is not London. So we don't have everything focused on London. Right now, we've got a perfect opportunity to do that because, as you'll know, um, the House of Commons is, is 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 pretty much falling into the river at the moment. So MPs are going to have to be decanted out of these buildings for the next 10 years anyway. So why not make a virtue of necessity, turn the House of Commons into a museum, put MPs up in the north or the Midlands, you know, and really demonstrate that we are listening to other people around the country and that it's not so London focused. That's a great vision. What, what's next for you and, and, and the Greens? You mentioned the private members bill. Um, what's next? Uh, what's next? Well, the thing is about politics right now is it's hard to predict exactly what is next. So whether there'll be a general election in the next few months, uh, who knows? If there is, obviously, we will want to be able to build on our really outstanding European election result um, and, and, and see if we can uh, win some more seats at, at Westminster. I think the Green New Deal is going to be a major part of our work going forward, holding the other parties to account when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, the, the, the green pledges that, that they make. Um, and crucially, of course, I mean, I'm sorry to come back to Brexit, but but ultimately, um, I would like there to be a, a people's vote. I think that we've now had three years since that original vote uh, to leave the EU. So much new information has become available since then. Uh, the, the complexity and the cost of leaving the EU is now much, much clearer than it ever was three years ago. So I think it's only right that people get that chance to to have a say on the final deal. And if they like it, then fine. But if they don't, then I think they should have the the option to remain. Well, that's, well, let's see what happens. It's all unfolding <laughs> right as we speak. Thank you so much, Caroline, uh, for Thank sharing you so your, your, your views today on the, the, the podcast. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.